And right now is a geopolitical podcast that brings you controversial world issues where we discuss their origins in the past, crisis today, and ramifications for the future. A land once remembered for its famed scholars and beauty, now known as a war zone and one of the most militarized regions in the world. A region that draws its name from its pristine lakes and ever-flowing rivers that holds utmost importance to the Indian giant. Kashmir has become a hotly debated topic that results from centuries of rich history turned violent. This region is situated in the far northern corner of India, where it borders China to the east and Pakistan to the west. Located in the center between three nuclear powers, this area is incredibly volatile. At this moment, the northern and western portions are occupied by Pakistan. These regions are called Gilgit and Balistan. India controls the southern and southeastern portions, these regions being Jammu and Kashmir as well as Ladakh. The line between Pakistan and India is called the Line of Control, or LOC. China has also laid claim to parts of Ladakh. Clearly, this territorial situation is a result of years of conflict, and this comes from a deep history of turmoil and religious violence involving the indigenous Kashmiris and foreign invaders. We'll talk about the history of the land and exactly how it ended up in such a contested situation. We'll also discuss the modern situation and how key figures like Prime Minister Modi affected. In addition, we'll discuss the effect of and on foreign powers to India. Just recently, Joe Biden was elected as the next president of the United States. We'll go over what he brings to the table for India and what his effect on Kashmir will be. Today, our two guests are going to be Riddhi and Rohit. Riddhi, why don't you introduce yourself? Hi, um, I'm Riddhi, and I co-run an account um, on Instagram called uh, Riddhi Rebuts. It mostly deals with contentious issues like uh, CAA, and now we're doing farm mills. And essentially, we just try to provide a balanced perspective. Um, so I guess uh, following us would be nice. Thank you. What about you, Rohit? Hey, guys. Thanks for having me on here. Uh, well, as you said, yes, my name is Rohit. Uh, I am US-based. Um, and I am a Kashmiri Pandit, so I've been pretty active in the you know Kashmiri sphere, you could say, uh, since I was a kid. Uh, I've been brought up in the culture and language and everything, so it's, uh, this, this topic means a lot to me, and uh, I'm glad you guys have me out here. Thank you. Yeah, so we do have two Kashmiri Pandits on here, as well as our host being another Kashmiri Pandit. Before we begin the current events in Kashmir, I want to ask each of you what problems you have faced being a Kashmiri pundit and how you've tried to overcome these obstacles. First to you, Riddhi. Um, so for me, um, I think the most striking thing is that um, every time someone asks me where I'm from and I say Kashmir, and then um, I wear like a, a sacred red thread and it's pretty obvious I'm Hindu. So then they're like, and you're Hindu? Um, and it's just, it's always very funny to see how surprised they are. Um, and, and for some reason, they get very uncomfortable the minute they realize I'm, I'm Kashmiri and I'm Hindu. And then they just stop talking. And yeah, so, something just switches off. And then that's not really a problem, but it's a very interesting observation. And also every time um, I say I'm from Kashmir, yeah, a lot of people just assume I'm Muslim. Um, so more importantly, um, pundits are often uh, left out of the narrative like almost all of the time. Um, I'm called a settler colonial, even though I literally do not live there. Um, or rather, I was not allowed to live there. Um, and when we try to highlight these issues, then we're deviating from the subject or, funnily enough, we are gaslighting Kashmiri Muslims. Um, and the problem is that in recent years, a lot of um, books have also emerged that essentially they rewrite history and make Kashmir's history look very peaceful and happy when that is just not the case. So for me, a lot of the time I will be interacting with Kashmiri Muslims who say that, no, we were peacefully converted by Sufi saints and that's all that ever happened in Kashmir and things like that. And then it becomes very hard to have a conversation with them because what they understand to be the history of Kashmir is entirely different and then there's just this blockade and we really can't get through to them and it is this it's the same narrative that is actually now spreading to the world so every time I have tried talking to people and saying that you know uh, things are not 
what they seem on the surface or what what the media is reporting is not always true um very few people would actually pay attention to that which is very problematic and as of now still most people don't know who kashmir pandits are or or what happened actually prior to 1990 is mostly unknown so yeah thank you what about you rohit i think my experiences as a kashmiri pandit have been pretty mixed um while i've seen a lot of good come out of it i typically remember the bad ones more um for each good experience i have there have been more many more bad ones that come with it when i started to become more vocal about kashmir in post uh, ajay pandit's death i was met with a lot of support from kashmiri pandits and certain diaspora in the hindu community um but as i said just a second ago for each applause kind of came in abuse Uh, for attending certain panels such as the Coalition of Hindu North Americans, uh, I was labeled a cowpiss drinker um, and history abuser. Um, after the Charcha Chat panel I had for the Hindu Student Council, um, I had multiple friends that actually shared the panel that I took part of. Um, but on one of the shares, um, I was met with a group of individuals that told me I couldn't go home because there was no room for me, and there was no room for Hindus. Um, I was told by the very same group of people that it's rude of me to talk about, you know, Kashmiri Pandits, Kashmiri Pandits history um without talking about Kashmiri Muslims. Um and it's routinely found on social media where I'm most active about these things. I know Riddhi can relate cuz she's pretty active on her Instagram account and uh, I've I'm often met with people who routinely curse me out and they tell me that I don't speak the facts. Um just like Riddhi said, uh the history behind Kashmir is it's a very violent um and it was peaceful prior to the 1300s and 1200s and it wasn't um it you know violence didn't begin t- till that time period um but i'm told that i'm speaking the wrong things um i've even had people tell me that uh kashmiri pandits are the most pampered minority in india um when there aren't when there are 62,000 families living in refugee camps there and it's a little bit you know hurt you know hurting when you kind of hear these things um i've been told kind of women we chose to leave because governor jagmohan told us to leave and it's it's constant denial on our end my end to be specific when i'm talking about um my history and where i've come from it's it's kind of as if like they don't want us to talk about ourselves and i've learned kind of as as a kashmiri pandit and as a human being that it's best to stay informed with proper facts with proper sources uh in these situations because that is the best way to kind of keep moving forward and it's never good to fall ill kind of towards the victim narrative um because i tend i believe that if you know if you, if you keep yourself head strong with facts um you maintain the upper ground in these situations so rohit how does the kashmir conflict tie into your fa- life and family i know you have a pretty uh, visceral story to tell So I think the Kashmir conflict is something that well obviously every Kashmiri pandit can relate to. Um however I feel as if I have a bit deeper relation towards my home state of Jammu and Kashmir. Throughout my childhood uh, my parents made it a mission for me to really learn the language, our culture, our faith and our history. Um and it makes me feel prideful that I, you know I know a lot about our festivals and what happened to us since the whole nine yards and especially the language is something that I really cherish. Um and I think I've done, they've done a good job um by teaching me these things um but I can really relate to two things and um one of them is that I've lost family directly to the conflict uh and the second thing is that I've actually been to Kashmir and not many have been privileged to do so um the first one I was talking about in regards to losing family my mother's father uh and his cousin uh were both murdered by Islamic terrorists uh they literally butchered them into little pieces and put out burnt cigarettes on their body as well as shot them with a shotgun multiple times um and these two could have potentially prevented their own fate if they just didn't stay um, if they they were given multiple warnings obviously by the the mosques blaring you know ralab salab kalu um as well as you know umka chate azadi you know these multiple slogans were planted out and said they were given so many warnings to leave and they often said like you know you know muslim was just one boy they would say muslims are our brothers and nothing would happen to us um but you know i wish i wish that was right and 
they, you know, they were unfortunately murdered there in Kashmir. And my mom didn't even get to perform the final rites of her own father. She was only 17 when she was handed the ashes of her father. And an FIR was launched, and obviously that couldn't have done much in that time period. Um, and that is something I, I wish, you know, I got to know my mother's father. Um, yeah, but uh, obviously I can't, and I can only know him through memories. Um, of my mother and I know that this is a bit heartfelt to say but it's something that I know I experienced that I have a really deep connection to but it's something that not just me but many Kashmiri pundits relate to um, and this is why I feel like I have a deeper connection to it than most diaspora here because it's just something that's so you know gut-wrenching um, and as I mentioned before I also feel like conflict ties to me because as someone who's visited Kashmir I have seen the grace and I've seen the beauty that is in Kashmir, you know, going to Tulmul, which is our Kirbawani, seeing our, the what we used to worship and Cheshmashai, Behagam, Sonamarag, all these beautiful names, all these beautiful places, the Mughal gardens, it's just, it's lovely. But I've also seen the militancy firsthand and it's, it's weird feeling at home, but not as a member, you know, going as a guest. And uh, that's what I feel like the Kashmir conflict, how much it relates to me on those two accords. Right, thank you. Aryan, now to you. Well, obviously I haven't been directly affected by it because, like me specifically, I have not. Because I was born in Detroit, obviously. But I do want to mention the story of my mom, who was in Kashmir at the time. So she tells me that in the middle of the night one day, they heard on loudspeakers, various Muslims were saying, every Hindu must leave the area by tomorrow morning or you will be killed. So her and her family were kind of somewhat ready for this. They were somewhat expecting it because obviously tensions had been arising, but they never expected to have to be forced to leave their homes. So they gathered their stuff and within that next night, they had to go all the way to Jammu. And in Jammu, they really suffered because obviously it's they had a lot of pop, there's a lot of population in the area. So there weren't too many good places to live. Two, they obviously lost a house, so they had very little money, and were forced to suffer for a very long time. And even now, they don't have that house back. Like, I remember we even visit visited Srinagar. We drove by my mom's house, and they can't get it back. And that's one of the biggest things, right? I see it very often on social media. Tons of people are always posting, right? Oh, the people inside Kashmir they should have the word of what to say, right? And many of them either want to be free or join P Pakistan. But the matter of fact is, is what they're not asking is what about the people that were kicked out of Kashmir in recent years? What about those people? What about the people who used to live in Kashmir but no longer live there? Once they start asking those questions and they start acting other people and really start to get to know those facts, I do believe that they will begin to understand truly the magnitude of this situation. And this occurred across Kashmir, not just Srinagar, or like not just cities, not just mountains, everywhere. And with this, it's clear that Kashmir is a diverse land, stretching from the foothills of Jammu in the south, to the hills of Kashmir, to the mountains of Ladakh near the Indo-Chinese border, and it harbors a wealth of cultures and ethnicities. Throughout its history, Kashmir has remained in a state of flux and has been through several regimes of power. Initially, Kashmir was a hub of Hinduism and Buddhism, and remained a primarily Hindu and Buddhist state for 13 centuries, albeit it changed hands between kings and empires a few times. Kashmir's rule as the crossroads between the Middle East and South Asia allowed it to become extremely prosperous and wealthy in terms of the economy and in terms of culture. It became a haven of several cultures all the way from Iran, Tibet, China, Afghanistan, Central Asia, and of course, India. Foreign invaders of Turkic Mongol descent led an invasion into India and opened up the region to Islam, which spread deeper and deeper. This only grew worse as the Mughals took power, which came at the expense of millions of Hindus and Buddhists. Over the course of 700 years, Muslim leaders engaged in conversion and genocide of Hindus and Buddhists. Eventually, the Sikh Dogra kingdom took power and helped establish the Hindu population. Economic growth would boom under the Sikhs, and Kashmir became a major part of their revenue. Overall, Hindus began to regain their population. After the withdrawal of the British, British Indi India was partitioned into India and Pakistan. The entire country was divided up in a matter of five weeks by a man who had never been to India in his entire life, 
Naturally, the borders were poorly planned and it divided villages, roads, rivers, and families. Bordering states in these two new countries were given the choice to choose which country they would join. In Kashmir, this decision was in the hands of Maharaja Hari Singh. The Maharaja, or King of Kashmir, thought that he could remain independent if he stalled this decision. It's important to note that while Hari Singh was a Hindu, he ruled over a primarily Muslim demographic. And Kashmir was obviously not the only kingdom that had problems with integrating into Greater India, but in Kashmir, after independence, India comprised of 562 princely states, and in Kashmir specifically, it decided to remain independent. So while Kashmir was still stalling, Pakistan sent Pashtun tribesmen over the Kashmiri border in order to take Kashmir by force. Maharaj Hari Singh, now in the depths of war, implored India to help defend Kashmir against the Pakistani militia. In order to do so, India told the Maharaj that he would have to sign a treaty of accession that would grant Kashmiri lands to India. In exchange, India granted temporary special status to the new state of Jammu and Kashmir, granting it considerable autonomy, which would become to be known as Article 370. Today, the Kashmir region faces disagreements from both sides. In India, there is insurgency and terrorism, and that's sponsored by Pakistan, even though the nation de denies it. In Pakistan, terrorism is also widespread. In addition, the populace faces a lack of government aid and infrastructure. It's clear that these tensions in Kashmir aren't the cause of the partition of British India. They've been a buildup over centuries. Sir Riddhi, when was the start and what is the cause of these religious clashes? Um, so, like you said, um, these were religious, um, these clashes were religious in nature. So, um, Kashmiris for many centuries were basically following a mix of um, Hindu philosophies, specifically Kashmiri Shaivism, uh, Buddhism, and indigenous traditions. So, until the 14th century, the ruler of Kashmir typically followed the religion of the masses. Now, sometimes there was like a weird ruler who would burn one temple down, but their damage was very limited, and you know a kind and just ruler would be uh, would replace that ruler pretty quickly. So now in the 14th century, um, there something changes, and this was when a ruler converts to Islam, while the majority of the population is Hindu. Now. Um, I'm going to go into this story because I think it's very interesting. So, in the 14th century, there was a man called Rinchen, who was a Ladakhi. Uh, he was a Ladakhi Buddhist, actually. And um, he was appointed as an administrator by the commander-in-chief, who was called Ramchandra. Now, Rinchen became very ambitious, and he killed Ramchandra and imprisoned his family. So. Soon after this, he converted to Islam, and to gain public support, he he would then marry Ramchandra's daughter, who uh, Kashmir is famously known as Kota Rani. Now, meanwhile, there is this man called Shamir, um, and his troop of soldiers, uh, I mean, obviously, uh, Muslim dude, uh, they had been given refuge in Kashmir. So they had claimed to be uh, fleeing persecution, um, somewhere else, and so the ruler of Kashmir had uh, granted him like refugee status. So Shamir was soon appointed to a high post once Rinchen ascended the throne, and about three years into his term, Rinchen was assassinated. Now, after Rinchen is assassinated, Kota Rani essentially becomes the ruler, and this is this is like one of my favorite things about Kashmir's history that we have a lot of uh, female rulers um, who are you know actually in the position to do stuff. So um, when Kota Rani becomes a ruler, she makes some new appointments, like that of the prime minister. Um, so, you know, a while into her term, uh, Shamir claims to have fallen sick. Now, when the prime minister goes to visit him, Shamir kills him. For this act of aggression, Kota Rani wants to sentence Shamir to death. And now this is a turning point in history because the the courtiers, who were at the time mostly Kashmiri pundits, said that no, we should not kill him because he's our guest. And, you know, I think a lot actually about what would have happened if Shamir had been killed. Um, because things only went downhill from there. 
So soon after, you know, this entire episode, uh, another group called the Sayyid would come in, and they were, you know, accepted because the ruler, which is Shamir, was Muslim. So the Sayyids uh, begin to publicly call for Hindus to be killed, and under uh, Sikandar the iconoclast, um, a hundred thousand Kashmir pundits, or one lakh, were stripped of all of their Hindu possessions, which was uh, basically like the Yagdopavi or uh, religious books, and they were drowned in the Dal Lake and then burnt uh, at a place nearby. Uh, it's called Ranawari today, it's near Srinagar. Um, and there were so many bodies that it formed an island called Batmazar. Um, Batmazar is basically the graveyard of the Batans, which is Kashmir Bandit. And it still exists today. Um, so, yeah, and there, there is a trend to every single genocide and exodus of Kashmir pundits that uh, three things will always happen. One is that there will be a lot of killing, there will be a lot of forced conversions, and the last one is that people will start fleeing the valley. So what happened was that 100,000 had been killed in a very brutal way, uh, 37,000 Kashmir pundits were forcibly converted, and it is a very popular uh, Kashmir, uh, like, like sort of a folklore slash historical remembrance thing that everyone fled except for 11 Kashmiri families. And so that entire episode was what I guess we could call the start of the religious clashes. And the cause would um, basically be radical ideology, which is intolerant to any other faith. Yeah. So one of the largest topics involving Kashmir is the Kashmiri Pandit Exodus. Could you go over who are Kashmiri Pandits and their history in the valley? Um, yeah, so that would um, be exoduses. So the, the entrance of Kashmiri Pandits in the valley is actually um, surrounded by a lot of Hindu mythology. So it is said that there lived a demon in the valley and uh, Rishi Kashyap. Uh, came in to basically kill this demon um, because the demon was harassing the tribes there. So once he did this, he invited the Saraswat Brahmins, who were you know basically living nearby, to live within the valley. And the Saraswat Brahmins were actually they were already living in Kashmir, but only during the summers because winters are very harsh. So you know once this entire process happened, then they began to live there permanently. Now, um, you know, a lot, uh, unlike um, a lot of um, things that have happened in you know countries like the U.S., this was not a case where um, the local indigenous people were killed um, or even for that reason colonized. So what happened was that the Brahmins they mingled with the tribes living there and they adapted, uh, they sorry, they adopted their traditions to create a new culture. Um, these uh, the Brahmins and the tribes also had a lot of intermarriages and uh, a lot of popular KP surnames today are actually tribal ones. So these two groups basically came together to form what we now know as uh, Kashmir Pandits. Um, there are a lot of... Um, Kashmir Pandit culture actually has a lot of interesting examples of these tribal traditions. For example, um, we have Ketsimavas, which is basically when uh, we offer food to uh, basically these uh, sort of um, like it's uh, we're basically offering food to these tribal deities sort of thing it's sort of a tradition we have continued from the, the tribe itself so things like that we have a lot of them um, a lot of places in Kashmir actually if you look at them uh, they have the suffix Nag and Nag was actually one of the tribes there so very Nag um, and you know places like that. So yeah, it was um, it was a good integration of two different groups. Um, but then things begin to change. Um, even like this, this was only the beginning. There, most of Kashmir Pandit history, um, actually, okay, maybe half of it almost, is full of a lot of um, bloodshed and violence. So um, prior to 1990, there were six mass genocides and exoduses of Kashmir Pandits. And um, 1992, well, in my opinion, present day would be the last one. Um, 
So what happened in 1990 was a build-up from 1989, um, and essentially tensions between radical uh, Islamists and uh, Kashmiri pundits heightened on 19 January 1990, which is actually what uh, Aryan was uh, describing just now. So um, in the dead of the night, a message uh, blared from the mosque, and this message was Ralev Zalevia Galev which means convert, flee, or uh, gulliv technically means burn to death, which I think is, you know, a lot more scary than just saying die. Um, and uh, that was basically it for Kashmiri Pandits because um, a lot of people had been killed in brutal, horrifying ways since August 1990, uh, sorry, 1989. And people were terrified of what would happen um, a lot of women actually jumped into River Vitasta and drowned to death because they didn't want to be raped. Um, a lot of uh, people actually already sort of had in mind uh, some level of emergency plans because this was just, this was really a gra like a gradual build up from 1989. Um, and there were, there were just these awful messages that were being blared from uh, Moss. There was one that uh, it, it was like a chant. Uh, what do we want? Uh, we want Kashmir. How do we want it? We want it without Kashmir pundits, but with uh, with Kashmir pundit women, which was basically saying we will rape your woman. Um, there's a there's a very um, famous Kashmir pundit woman, Sananda Vishesh. She's based in the U.S. Uh, she actually described how um, her. Her, I think it was her father or grandfather was basically prepared to kill her um, because just like that's how terrifying things were. Um, what Aryan described is that his he, his house was taken over. Um, my mom's family actually they were they were not very well to do, um, and then they had saved up a lot to buy like this new house. And what happened to it was that it was uh, it was burned out. Um, so a lot of houses were burnt that night. Uh, people began to leave in like these makeshift, uh, like these really bad uh, carts uh, and and trucks. And um, there were there were a lot of people on the streets, uh, make, you know, saying these chants. And it was it was like all hell broke loose that day. There were, any sense of Kashmir was gone. Um, there's this very uh, popular uh, like a lot of. Uh, Kashmir pundits are aware of this, um, that there was this man who was being hunted down by uh, terrorists. And so his his wife is, uh, tells to her, uh, says to him, uh, why don't you hide in the uh, rice drum? So he does that. Um, but now the, the neighbor, who is a Kashmir Muslim woman, she's a very old woman. She, it's like, you know, what? I, I don't see why she's interested in all of this. Um, so she sees this. She sees the man hiding in the rice drum, and um, so the terrorists come into the house. They say, "Where is so and so?" They can't find him, so they leave. But while they're leaving, the Kashmir, uh, that uh, the Kashmiri Muslim neighbor, she tells them that he's hiding in the rice drum. So the terrorists go near the rice drum, shoot him while he's still in the rice drum, and make the wife eat the raw rice with his blood in. So that. That was basically, that day was just like something got into people and they just like got, yeah, it was, it was, it was bad. Um, and so that night, um, 300,000 uh, Kashmir pundits fled, um, accompanied by uh, some Sikhs and Christians. And that was, the 300,000 was basically 99% of all Kashmir pundits. And um, now that most uh, Kashmir pundits don't even live there anymore, the culture is effectively dying. Um, I remember when I went to Kashmir, I was actually, I was very, it was like, it was very surprising to be surrounded by people who speak the same language as me. It's like, um, what I do a lot with my uh, parents is that if I have something I, I want to say and I don't want other people to understand it, I'll speak in um, fragmented Kashmir. And then I couldn't do that there. I was so surprised, like pleasantly surprised. Um, and 
you know obviously being surrounded in uh in, 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 in uh, like with people who actually speak the same language would have been a huge help in learning kashmiri um but now most kashmiris my age barely even know kashmiri i think rohit is actually the most fluent um young kashmiri i know so yeah um i the future is looking quite bleak for us uh, but we're trying to change that thank you i know all three of you are members of the kashmiri pundit diaspora so Riddhi, where are the pundits who fled Kashmir and now living? Um, so in Kashmir, um, the situation was that uh, such that it's actually a very famous thing that uh, Kashmiris would only spend on education. Um, for example, my my father's family they were they they were like a middle class family, but my grandfather would buy a lot of books and so they barely had enough to eat um so yeah crazy stuff like that but the biggest investment for kashmiris would always be their house so it would be two things your property and your education and so when this happened on 19th january um that the houses were basically taken away from them um a lot of people they actually um, they tried to go back and sell them, but uh, two things happened. Uh, sorry, three things happened. Either they would be killed, which actually that happened to a relative of mine. He he tried to sell his house, and he was shot. Um, uh, the second thing would be that uh, you would find that your house has been burned or forcibly occupied, and well, they would just threaten you. Um, there's basically no way you can sell it. Third thing was that um, they would be like, okay, we'll sell this to you. But they know that you're really desperate, so they would give you a very, very low price. Basically, this is this is gonna tide you over what one month, and that's it. This is not you're not getting what you paid for at all. So um, because of this, basically, you know, because of these two things, Kashmir pandits basically most of them did not have enough money to rent anything in Jammu. Uh, so 69% of Kashmir pundits that fled ended up staying in refugee camps. And like Rohit mentioned, a lot of people are still living in those refugee camps. And um, even if you weren't living in refugee camps, life was not, like, it was not okay for you at all. Um, uh, in refugee camps, obviously, it was a lot worse. The, a lot of people died from snake bites. Uh, snake bites and scorching heat, which was has basically not been counted in the death tally for Kashmir pundits, even though it, it really should be. Um, so if you weren't living uh, in these refugee camps, you would most likely either be living in Jammu or Delhi. And in Jammu, the problem was that Jammu was very underdeveloped at that time. So, um, and there was a lot of hostility towards Kashmir pundits because it was like these people are suddenly coming here and using my resources that's not fair um, so actually if you look at Jammu in 1990 through 1995 there were a lot of incidents in which Kashmir pundits were getting beaten up by Jammuites um, because it was just like there was a lot of you know uh, this feeling of uh, there has been injustice to us um, and yeah uh, so I think now Kashmir pundits are more spread out, but uh, most still live in uh, Delhi, Jammu, uh, and yeah, Delhi and Jammu. One of the largest changes that has come is due to the election of Prime Minister Modi. Modi was elected in 2014 in a landslide victory with the BJP party. One thing to note about in Indian elections is that different political parties can form coalitions to get more votes. In the United States, presidents can serve a max of two terms, or eight years, but in India, a prime minister can stay in power as long as they keep winning elections. This give, gives Modi a potentially infinite time to make changes throughout India and Kashmir. He's made changes to Kashmir that many say are crucial to Kashmiri development, such as the revocation of Article 370, which gave Kashmiri its special autonomic status. So Rohit, would you like to explain what Article 370 was and why it was so controversial? Yeah, sure thing. 
So, Article 370 was a temporary article drafted a few years post-independence of India. Um, and the reason why I mentioned post-Indian independence is because Kashmir at, at the time, as uh, Anshuman and Arin um, talked about, it was a princely state at the time. And it decided to stay independent because Maharaj Hari Singh wanted to keep its you know, essential prince, you know, prince status there. Um, but it was not in its stability, it was not stable in, because Pakistani tribal forces attacked the Kashmiri population and the army. And at the time, due to UN code, the United Nations code to be specific, India really could not help uh, Kashmir because it was technically considered foreign soil. So in order for India to provide troops and help Kashmir, it had to accede itself to India. So in 1947, by the treaty, the, uh, by Maharaj Singh, it, uh, he signed the instrument of accession and joined India. So Article 370 uh, came a few years after that, and that was there to protect kind of the individuality or the uniqueness, you could say, of Kashmir. And uh, with Article 70 came Article 35A. And both these laws were kind of synergistic in a sense. In that way, both laws were good for its Kashmir in itself, you could say, or not good, but both laws were there put into place and both of them kind of fed off each other. So due to these two laws kind of being merged together, um, it, it was a bit strange uh, to have such a unique kind of landmark now. Kashmir could eventually, essentially be its own kind of state, uh, independent of other states in India, but it still ruled under India at the same time. So one could, uh, in order to be, like in order to buy land in Kashmir and buy property, one could only be a Kashmiri because of these two articles. Um, and furthermore, women would actually lose their rights to their homeland if they married outside of their Kashmiri culture. So right after the bat, this, these two articles put together didn't seem too well fitting for uh, women. It, it also, these two articles also called for the barbaric treatment of workers and settlers there. Uh, meaning in, in modern countries such as the United States and India, there is meritocracy. You kind of work your way up to the top. Um, there was not this upward movement and this meritocracy because this kind of special inclusivity they've had in Kashmir through these two articles left those workers and those settlers at the bottom and they couldn't climb to the top. Multiple groups lost their rights to obtain land and to obtain jobs freely. Uh, as I mentioned, women would lose their rights to retain basically their Kashmiri land. Uh, these people included Dalits, uh, LGBTQ+, um, Pakistani refugees that would come to Kashmir, they would not even be able to obtain land. Um, and obviously, Kashmiri Pandit Sash Six, um, these groups, they could not uh, essentially be the same they were before. They kind of lost their own, their own kind of uh, status as Kashmiris, and they were not treated the same as the majority, which was the Kashmiri Muslim. Um, and due to the inclusivity of these two articles, Kashmir eventually became a breeding ground for terrorism, and this terrorism built hostility toward these minorities. Um, alongside this, an economic failure in Kashmir further worsened it. Um, the revocation of 370 essentially, as I mentioned, it allows for more, for a bigger expansion of Kashmir's industries and a bigger expansion of the probability of one working their way to the top and essentially kind of working their way in there. Uh, it furthermore, the, the revocation of 370, uh, it allows for a drop in terrorism. But there have been statistics shown this whole year since the first, since the one year anniversary of the revocation of 370, there's a 40% drop in recruitment into terrorist groups, which is a pretty good thing, I would say. And the only reason why it seems controversial that the Article 7 is removed is essentially because Kashmir loses its special status, as I mentioned. Uh, I understand that as a Kashmiri that my culture is unique, um, but one wouldn't lose their identity when merging into a bigger group. There are so many states in India and you often say your culture matters more and it's not something that you lose in that aspect. And another reason why it seemed controversial is because it's the only Muslim state in a Hindu country. So from the outside looking in, uh, it does seem oppressive because why would someone remove an article in the only Muslim state? But once you dig deeper and you really look at the history behind it, why were these two articles put into place and what happened to everyone else besides the Muslim majority, you really do see the issue with those articles. Uh, one thing to know, actually, in both articles, child marriage was legal during the construction of these articles. So 
banning by removing these articles you're essentially helping people move up in the ladder you're banning child marriage you're helping people get their rights back and this is something that uh, is really progressive toward helping india and helping kashmir as a whole so you actually mentioned a lot of very good short-term changes right like one of the biggest ones that's opening up kashmir to things like businesses investing in indian control it's obviously going to result in a lot of internal changes but how do you think this will affect india in the long term and notably kashmir in the long term it's a really good point you asked actually so to my extended knowledge um i know that prime minister modi and hopefully other political parties follow suit they tend to bring long-term development and stability to kashmir um, as I said before, it does seem shaky in the beginning because this country was only built in 1947, so it's still pretty young. Um, but from what has been being, from what has been seen, Modi has been increasing the funding for road development um, and for business ventures in Kashmir. Uh, for example, a KFC was finally built in Kashmir, uh, which is one of the first, uh, if, if I'm not wrong, one of the first, or if the first, uh, kind of outside markets brought into Kashmir. Um, Kashmir can now, because of these new, this newfound funding for development and for businesses, they can finally grow and expand its beauty. Because prior to, uh, I would say, 1947, uh, Kashmir's economy, e- economy was kind of built on tourism and agriculture, and that solely cannot really, you know, thrive. It um, cannot build a state. And uh, with these long-term developments, minorities can now buy land again. They can apply for domicile citizenship in Kashmir. So. I see that Kashmir is on its path to once finally go back to its heavenly status. It was actually once called heaven on earth. Um, and with the roads being more built, the KFC being building up, uh, even movie theaters are finally being reopened. Uh, these small little pockets that are kind of building up will eventually merge into something bigger. And I can see that Kashmir is moving back to its roots and being you know, a much more uh, lively state. For decades, Kashmiri pundits have been refugees in their own homeland, in a diaspora that has no place that they can call home. Now, Modi's election has won enormous support from Kashmiri Hindus. Is it possible for them to return to Kashmir now, or do you think cultural differences will prevent that from occurring, Rohit? Um, sadly, I don't think it's possible for us to return to Kashmir um, anytime soon. Um, and I have quite a bit of reasons why. Um, I get that. You know, the revocation of 370 finally allows us to, essentially, it, it, it lets us kind of go back. But at the same time, it's not safe to go back. Uh, to this day, there are still Hindus being murdered uh, for just being Hindu. Um, and it's not just Hindus. Um, just recently, a Kashmiri Sikh was murdered. He was actually literally blown up um, just because he was there on duty and he was killed for not being Muslim. Uh, as I mentioned, Hindus were also murdered. Ajay Pandita was the last local Sarpanch, which is the governor. Uh, he was the last local Sarpanch of JNK, and he was shot dead by uh, the TRF, which is a Pakistani terrorist group. Um, and that group took responsibility for it. And they had a clear message uh, Kashmir could not be a Hindu land. Um, and just two days ago, a Hindu who had applied for domicile citizenship was killed in Kashmir by the very same TRF that killed Ajay Pandita. And it, it, due to those reasons, it clearly isn't safe to go back. And it won't be um, for a long time. There are so many things that are going on in Kashmir that won't allow for indigenous groups and other minorities to return uh, due to a lot of the built-in backlash and kind of the, uh, as we see in America today, like systematic racism and systematic, uh, it's basically systemic bounding that's hurting it. Uh, For example, indigenous places like Anantanag in Kashmir, it's being called like Islamabad now. And these simple things are not, it's not something that makes you feel at home. Um, and as I mentioned, it won't be safe until terrorism really comes to an end. And it won't be safe until minorities can go back, until Hindus can be compensated for what they've lost for so many years they've suffered. Um, people wouldn't just willingly leave their mansions in Kashmir. That's not how it works. You don't, you know, my mother still has PTSD from what she had went through. You, These things, it won't be peaceful to go back until everything has been kind of replaced for it. And um, another thing, I don't think it will be safe until Pakistan kind of takes responsibility for their actions. Um, as uh, maybe uh, you know, but the UN plebiscite that happened in 1951, uh, the first step in the plebiscite was for Pakistan to withdraw the troops from Kashmir. That step still has not been completed. So uh, Kashmir won't be safe for the minorities and for Hindus until the act of terrorism and the act of composition finally falls through. Um, if I could add on. 
Um, there's also um, so when the entire the, the exodus happened in 1990, uh, the government um, underreported uh, deaths by a couple, like a few hundred, uh, actually thousands. Um, and the government still has not acknowledged that this happened, that this was uh, this was a major event in Kashmir's history. Like there has been no acknowledgement from the government. Uh, Kashmir groups have repeatedly tried actually with Modi, and there's still there's nothing. So I think that's also that's an important step uh, that has yet to be taken. I mean, it's uh, it's, it's soon going to be 31 years since uh, that happened. And uh, yeah, I think that's a very important step that should be taken. Yeah, so as Riddhi said, there's also a sinister political motive behind this. And a lot of Muslims have actually been killed as well. Um, BJP Muslim leaders have been killed by terrorists. And this shows that it's not, there's no, there's not only a religious motive, but a political reason behind this. So one of the largest questions is how Pakistan was able to take a part of Kashmir now known as POK or Pakistan-occupied Kashmir. This takes us all the way back to 1947 when Pakistan invaded Kashmir. Muhammad Ali Jinnah, the founder and leader of Pakistan, attempted to create resurrections within the Kashmiri Muslim population. He ordered a blockade of supplies to Kashmir and permitted an invasion. The Pakistani army made rapid advances, all of which resulted in massive bloodshed of Kashmiris. In the cities of Rajuri and Miripur, over 50,000 Hindus and Sikhs were killed. Britain would attempt to mediate the conflict and ask Kashmir to hold a plebiscite. The people would be allowed to vote to which country they would cede. This attempt at making peace was rejected by Jinnah and the Pakistani government. The United Nations would then order a complete withdrawal from Pakistan, which was rejected once again. To this day, Pakistan continues to occupy these territories gained in the war. While the news on current events of Kashmir often comes up in the news, the realities of POK or Pakistan-occupied Kashmir aren't given the same attention. The reality is that the demographics of POK have completely been changed. The land is dominated by non-Kashmiris, who were moved there in order to essentially colonize the state. The POK government is led by non-Kashmiris, which means that they have no representation to decide their affairs. All government decisions are made to favor the Pakistani government, which is essentially governed by the army. During the 1970s and continuing till now present day, Kashmir faced radicalism against Kashmiri pundits. Neighbors turned on neighbor. Hit lists with the name of Kashmiri pundit families were handed out. This was the seventh Kashmiri exodus, the seventh exodus of a series starting 1,300 years prior. By 1985, 95% of the original Kashmiri pundit population would have left Kashmir. So Riddhi, what was the cause of this radical movement? Um, this is, uh, this is a tough question. Um, I think it was, uh, I mean, this has at least been building up since 1947. Um, I would say it's a mix of radical ideology and uh, Pakistani interference because what we see in 1947 is that um, what happened actually in 1947 is that as uh, Rohit described earlier, um, Pakistan sent this group called, actually they're called the Azad Kashmir group, uh, uh, sorry, the Azad Kashmir army, yeah. And when they reached, and this was, this was basically just a, I think it was a day before a session was uh, basically formalized. Um, what had happened was that uh, Hari Singh, he was, he had basically fled Kashmir at this point because he knew this this army was coming, and um, this army once they reached, uh, I think it was Uri, uh, then Hari Singh got really worried because just a while before that they had been at Baramula, where even if you ask today people in Baramula, they will tell you that there was this massive gang rape and um it was just a it was a it was a massacre basically um only one there's a very famous saying there that only one third of the people survived uh one third of this very big town survived 
um, Azam Kashmir's uh, army. So um, because of this, Hari Singh got very worried, and that's actually that I think that was the event that pushed him to uh, sign the accession. Um, so. So from this point onwards, I mean, it has always been, uh, it was Jinnah's wish, it has always been Pakistan's wish um, to have Kashmir. Um, so because of that, ever since you know 1947, they have been sending a lot of uh, people, a lot of terrorists to Kashmir. Uh, they've been selling a lot of arms to Kashmir. They have been training people, and in fact, it's it's actually um, there's this thing that uh, Pakistan is a higher institute of learning for what for terrorism, and uh, like a lot of um, Kashmir youths, even now they cross over to Pakistan, uh, learn how to commit these uh, acts of terror, and then they come back and you know execute. So, you know, there was. Uh, Oh, sorry. My point about Baramullah was that at that point, and actually even Sheikh Abdullah, they were very anti-Pakistan. Uh, it's it's well recorded that Sheikh Abdullah um, he had rejected Pakistan multiple times. Like this is not just a one-time incident. He had done it like many many times, uh, and um, Jinnah kept pursuing him, but he kept saying no. He said that I don't want to go with Pakistan. I want to go with India. And so this sentiment was actually because at that point Sheikh Abdullah was basically that guy, that guy that everyone wanted to go behind. Uh, all the Kashmir Muslims, uh, okay, most of them really liked Sheikh Abdullah. So at that point, especially after what happened at Baramullah, a lot of people were feeling very anti-Pakistan, and this is where I actually I admire the like the ingenuity that has gone into Pakistan's efforts to basically brainwash people because ever since then they have it has been a long-term campaign to tell people that uh, to you know push people into radicalization that you know you're not free you don't have rights you need to uh, this is not we need to capture this land you need to join an uh, Islamic nation uh, these Hindus are gonna terrorize you blah 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 and that was really like the cause of this radical movement because under um, so okay so that was one facet of it the other facet was also that there was a lot of sentiment against uh, Dogra rule at that time Hari Singh it is said that uh, he uh, he did not give uh, Kashmir Muslims jobs um, so that's why Sheikh Abdullah actually started the Quit Kashmir movement, which was basically asking uh, Hari Singh to, you know, get the hell out. Um, so these two things. So on one hand, we want, uh, I mean, they wanted the Hindu ruler to get out. And on the other hand, uh, you have Pakistani terrorists explaining to you that, you know, uh, why just the Hindu ruler? Why not get rid of the whole Hindu country? And so these two, I think, you know, combined to form a very dangerous and radical movement. Yeah. So obviously that led to like no shortage of volatility, and that's something that Kashmir is known for. In February 14th of 2019, a convoy of Indian soldiers was attacked by a suicide bomber. That resulted in 40 deaths. Similar attacks of smaller scale happen on a constant basis, and the Indian army has been called to stop these attacks and restore peace to the valley. The Indian government has put a curfew in place to help soldiers as well as sev several media and infrastructure regulations. These include things like power regulations, mandatory power outages, internet restrictions, and call blocking. In the media, these are often portrayed as oppressive, authoritarian, and some even call them fascist. But this is clearly not the case. So what are the purposes of this curfew and what are the results of the Indian army's intervention? Rithi, what do you think about this? Um, so I just want to say that, um, like I do think uh, there are, you know, uh, a lot of downsides to the curfew. For example, you know, education has been disrupted a lot, especially now uh, with COVID. Um, but it's like 
the way I see it, um, and I have relatives living there, so it's not just a matter of okay, Kashmiri Muslims are you know suffering through this. No, this was a this was across the board. Uh, Jammu also had to experience this for a while before they uh, sort of changed the rule. So the way I see it is that it's between these disruptions or death. That's the way I see it. Um, and so the purpose of this curfew was uh, to. What the Indian Army wanted to do first with the the limitation, like the the 4G ban, was they wanted to slow communication uh, between terrorists. And that I think Rohit was talking about the numbers earlier. That actually helped a lot. Uh, less uh, less uh, people turned to radicalism this year, things like that. Uh, more uh, terrorist hideouts were uh, you know found, and more terrorists were basically eliminated um, and so yeah the Indian Army's intervention is well you know t- bearing some fruit but um, obviously we know that uh, since this curfew was implemented there has been a lot of uh, international outcry about it which is why uh, it has been it was supposed to be eased at least and then you know COVID came along um, so yeah, uh, there's still you know a long way to go, but uh, so far the curfew has been fairly effective. I think the the government, the and the Indian Army need to weigh between the pros and cons of these two. And you know they clearly thought that uh, it matters more to be ridding the valley of terrorism. Yeah. So obviously these are all very important changes, and they need to be made. But many people still argue. Could these authoritarian temporary measures be used as a threat to democracy? Well, just a couple of days ago, we did see the results of the DDC, or District Developmental Council polls. And these polls do show that these actions are gaining support in Kashmir. So while BJP was not necessarily winning these elections, they had the second most seats and they're gaining influence. So while these decisions aren't necessarily the most popular, they are growing up in popularity in Jammu and Kashmir. The issue of Kashmir has deep connections within the United States. Trump's strategy of increasing aggressiveness towards China allows India to become a key ally in the battle for global supremacy. Kashmir, as well as the northeastern state of Arunachal Pradesh, are in a constant state of conflict as China crosses the country borders in an effect to control territory and assert dominance over India. China also controls the region of Oxide Chin that was recently taken in the Sino-Indian War during the 1950s from Kashmir. These two nations have long held much power in Asia, so it would seem that they should have faced multiple wars in the past centuries. But until just a century ago, China never bordered India. Instead, it was Tibet. Both India and Tibet have long held cultural, religious, and trade relationships that guaranteed peace and prosperity. The invasion and occupation of Tibet allowed China to control these territories and therefore gain access to Indian borders. China's aggressive and expansionist policy now puts Kashmir at risk. So India has several strategic advantages in this situation that it can use. It shares borders with China and has a formidable air force and army. And in the south, its navy is poised on shipping lanes that can cripple China's oil transport in the region. And this gives India considerably for- considerable force over the region. And these things are tactical advantages that could be potentially beneficial to the United States. Now, Biden's victory in the presidential elections has the possibility that this could all change. Unlike Trump, Biden has shown that he isn't the best ally of Prime Minister Modi. He has criticized the BJP's moves in Kashmir and the Citizenship Amendment Act. Fears in India are that Biden can strike a business deal with China and this would effectively end the rising the rising Indian-American relations. No matter what Biden's agenda is, India must be a key ally in order to counter the rising threat of China and Kashmir, the Pacific, and the world. Before this episode comes to an end, I want to ask each of you what would be your dream vision of a Kashmir in the future. Riddhi, to you. Um, so for me, um, like uh, Rohit mentioned earlier, that uh, Kashmir's economy was actually very dependent on tourism. And a lot of uh, 
old Kashmir, uh, sorry, a lot of old Bollywood films, if you would actually look at them, are actually shot in Kashmir, and it's always very nice to to watch them. So for me, what I've always envisioned is a sort of a return to that period. Uh, although it was a lot of, um, there was still a lot of instability, but obviously, uh, as in what I mean, return to that period. I mean, like the, the place should be habitable for tourists, for minorities. Like I want to live there. That is my long-term plan. I do want to live there. Um, and that Srinagar would be a very beautiful city. So I, I, I would wish that Srinagar would be developed to be sort of a metropolis and it would just be gorgeous because it's it's within a valley so you can see the mountains, the, the mountain range. So yeah, I think that would be my vision. All right, what about you, Rohit? I, uh, Kashmir is a place that I, I really want to finally call home. You know, each time I've been to India, it's it's been like I've been a visitor in Kashmir um, and I don't want to be a visitor anymore I it's as if I'm a guest in my own home you know like I just I want to go I want to go to Kashmir and be like hey I know these guys speak the same language as me and that's amazing because I know that they brought that up but it is a pleasant surprise when I'm talking Kashmir to my mom I'm like oh wait hey everybody can speak in Kashmir that's awesome but it's it's a bit unsettling when you're looking at you know, Pehlgam or Cheshmashai or these other places in Kashmir and you're just like, this is something that once could have been. It's a bit eerie. And um, I I want to go home and I want to finally feel respected in Kashmir. I, I wish to live the life my parents did before the violence started. My dad would often tell me they would climb the mountains, they would run up, they would be really, you know, fit. They really do what they wanted, they would swim, they'd swim the Dal Lake. And uh, they would, you know, steal trees, steal apples from the trees from their neighbors. And my mom would tell me that they had school rivalries. And um, just waking up in the morning and seeing the mountains in the front and the grass in the back, like, is that something, you know, that we all want to go? It's something that we all want to see. And um, I really do want to wish the life they, I want to live that life. And it's, it's a bit shameful that, you know, me talking about what I want and me talking about who I am and who I was, it's been, it's, you know, it seems, it's seen insensitive toward the other, the other groups and it's, um, it's not, you know, it's not okay. And I really want to kind of go back and see peace. I want to see Kashmir where it was thriving before. And, um, I want to, before I end off, I want to say two things. First thing is, please, to people who are listening to the podcast, please update yourself on current news and read the truth. Surface level reading is not going to help anybody. Uh, please look past the New York Times headlines and, you know, actually read the article and try to fact check things. Um, Riddhi has a great page full of sources that I really love reading, um, especially uh, SAHF, the South Asian Heritage Forums. Um, and KOA, the Kashmiri Overseas Association, as well as other articles such as like blogs.lock. They have really good articles about 370. Um, and I know I'm getting a, lot, a little off track here, but the one thing I want to end off with is, I know maybe a little cliche to end it off with a quote, um, but I want to end this, my part of the podcast with a quote my dad often repeats. And um, it's, they tried to bury us, but they didn't know we were seeds. So to everybody, you know, let's keep fighting and let's keep saying for ourselves and for our rival homeland. And I hope one day we can look back at Kashmir as something that's beautiful and something that could be. Very well said. That was very good on both your parts. So in terms of like my own dream, obviously you mentioned how your family had culture and Riddhi mentioned how people should be able to like return. And I remember my mom would always mention how she would be skiing in the winter with her brother. And she would always tell me the tales of that and to think all these cultures of so many people living their lives have been completely destroyed as a result of the, this diaspora and all, and all this genocide, which is what it is, frankly. And I just want to cite Amritsar as an example, right? So I remember that I was there six years ago on one trip to India, and Amritsar looked like the poorer regions of India. It wasn't very nice. But then when I came back two years after that, so four years before now, it looked beautiful. Like, this is two years after the election of Modi, right? And it was beautiful. I saw what he had done to the region. He truly industrialized it. He modernized it. And it was a wonderful place. So I've seen that India does have the capability to truly help regions. And all of India's living standard has gone up. All of it has gotten better. And I'm not 
I'm not lying when I said this. I walked I walked into Amritsar that day. I remember we had driven down from Jammu, which is where my grandparents currently lived, and I was surprised that it looked like Europe. And but in Kashmir though, the story was the opposite. I remember getting there and it was so much dustier, so much sadder, so much more painful than I remembered. Everybody in Kashmir is hurting right now. Even the people who forced out all those Hindus, even they are hurting. And until serious political reform is brought and those people who are brought justice, notably the Kashmiri Pandits, until they can get their homes back, and as both of you mentioned, until they can have their homes back, nothing will truly change. And my vision for the future is ultimately, I want to see all the Kashmiri Pandits who are forced out. I want to see their families get their land back. I want to see the terrorism, all these cells completely defeated and destroyed. And I want to see um, true peace and true modernity brought to Kashmir and while still preserving the beautiful culture that it holds. And I do believe that we can get there. And I believe that with these new policies and with the changes that are coming, if we all work hard enough, we can get to that bigger, brighter future. Anshuman, what are your views for the future? Uh, well, I'm going to be honest. Um, since I'm not a Kashmiri, I can't really hold that much of a dream vision but coming from a political perspective i think that kashmir's best bet would be to remain with india since ceding to pakistan or what would you know allow it to become a terrorist launch pad to other parts of india and then allowing kashmir to become independent would mean that it's surrounded by three nuclear powers where something's bound to happen and so India is the one secular country out of all, out of these three, and I think that's the best bet. And I also want, as Riddhi said before, tourism plays a key role in Kashmir, and I want tourism to come back, and I want the world to really see what Kashmir is and what it means. And so once again, I want to give a huge thanks to Rohit and Riddhi for joining us on this podcast. We thank you all for listening, and stay tuned for our next episode.